So good morning again. I see a lot of new faces. So just want to introduce myself. My name is Deshaun. I'm one of the three pastors here at Grace Fellowship. And as Tim said, we're going to be getting into the Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 73 in particular. So starting off, I want to ask a question and engage everyone with this one. See who's paying attention. So raise your hand if you have any social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or whatever the other ones. Wow. So no, keep your hands up really quickly. All right, good. So get a good gauge. So pretty much every single person in here. So the reason why I bring that up is that's going to be important as we're looking at Psalm 73, because we're going to realize how our engagement online, our engagement social media makes us particularly prone to the sin that we see Asaf struggling with. And so that problem, it normally manifests itself in two different questions. And those questions normally come in some form of Why do good things happen to bad people or the reverse of why do bad things happen to good people? And so the problem that we're going to see in Psalm 73, I think, can be stated and summarized in one word. That word is myopia. And so that may sound like a weird word, but for some of us who have glasses or know what that means, it's basically nearsighted. And so myopia is a condition where you can see things that are clearly with, I mean, see things that are close with clarity, but things that are distant are blurry and hard to see. And also with this myopia, <laughs> you're not, it's not able to just naturally heal. So it's not just by you getting older, it actually gets worse, but it needs to be surgically corrected or through glass or some kind of thing to help correct the vision. And that's why this sermon today is titled The Tragedy of Myopic Faith. And I got that from a pastor that I, rec- I think is really good, Steve Lawson, and he called it myopic faith. And, and the tragedy of it is because where we set our eyes will determine the health of our souls. And so we're going to see that flushed out through Psalm 73 of when the psalmist looks within, when he looks around, that he struggles and that he goes in times of doubting the Lord. But when he's able to look to the Lord, he's able to be able to stand strong, to put his faith and trust in him. And so we're going to see that today in Psalm 73. So if you guys could, please open up to Psalm 73, and it'll also be up on the screen, and we're going to read the passage. So Psalm 73, starting in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until 
I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. So let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we can look at a passage like this, see the ebbs and flow of Asaph's faith. I've seen him struggling, envying those who are around him, him wrestling and describing how they are living their lives, and yet it seems like they're prospering. And even your people coming around and enjoying and seeing no fault in this. Lord, forgive us when we do the same exact thing, when we doubt your goodness, when we doubt you, thinking that you do not care, that you are blind to this, help us to be reminded of how glorious and good you actually are. That our security, our hope, our strength comes from you. And that you are our refuge. And Lord, I pray for each and every single one of us here today as we go through this passage, that as we come to the end of the passage, whether we are able to say it exactly like the psalmist or we feel that tugging of, I'm not there, Lord, but I want to be. I want to be able to say that whom do I have in heaven but you? And there's nothing on this earth that I desire besides you. Give us those hearts, Lord, and help us to recognize when our hearts are far from that. We praise you and we thank you because we know that you care about this work much more than any of us ever could and that you will bring it to completion, that you will guide your people to glory and that we will be received by you. And that is the greatest joy and the greatest pleasure that any of us could ever have. And we praise you for that this morning. And it's in your name that I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 So as we begin off in Psalm 73, we're going to see a little bit difference in the authors. We're going to see Asaph, which I put a little graphic up to give a brief description of who he is. So the name Asaph, there's a couple different people by that name. There's four of them, actually. And so in 2 Chronicles 29, 30, we see that he's a seer, what we would call a prophet. He also was a Levite and chief musician um, during the time of David, which we see in the other reference right there. And then he also either has a line of descendants or what we most likely believe is that he had followers who were called the sons of Asaph, which we see once, um, once the Israelites come back from exile, we see the sons of Asaph leading worship, being in the temple, and they're leading in this type of way. 
So that's who Asaph is, and that's going to help us as we're going through this passage to see some of the things that he's talking about, because this is a leader. This is a leader in music. This is one who is going before the people of God and leading music. So if anybody should know the intimacy with the Lord to be able to recognize these things, this should be the one. And so we're going to see, as we see his struggles, that this is not just somebody who's a bystander, but somebody who is spending time worshiping the Lord. So now that brings us to this passage. So it's a pretty large passage, but where I broke it down is from verses 1 through 12, we're going to see him looking around. So he's going to be looking at how are things going on around him. And then in verses 13 through 17, we're going to see him looking within, wrestling with the conclusions that he's come to. And as we come to 18 through 28, we're going to see him looking above, as we just sung, looking to Jesus, turning our eyes to him, and we find our strength and our security there. So with that, let's jump into the passage. So starting off in verse 1, he begins by saying, truly God is good to Israel. So we see his first thing that comes right out of the gate. He makes a bold and clear statement. God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. And this is going to be important because this is the basis of why he's starting to struggle, of why he's wrestling with. Because on one hand, objectively, he knows without a doubt, God is good to his people. He is good to Israel. He is good to those who are pure in heart. But as we see with Asaph, he begins to slip as he goes on into verses 2 and verse 3. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He leaves no mystery to what's going on. He tells us very straightforward, and I love that about him. There's no mixing of words. He's honest. He's envious, and he's jealous of those who are wicked and arrogant. And I believe he's wrestling with this question that God is good to those in Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So why are those who are wicked, those who are not following the Lord, those who are arrogant, why are they prosperous? And so he's struggling with that question of, God, if you are truly good to Israel, then why do these people seem to be prospering? And it's interesting the word that he used here for prosperity is not just when we think of wealth, but it's the word of shalom. And so it's much more than just physical wealth. It's harmonious relationships. It's peace. It's completeness and fullness. And so he's saying this is what only the people of God should have. So why are these wicked people having this? And as we go through his description of the wicked through verses 4 through 9, it's important to keep in our mind that this is from his vantage point, that he believes that they are prospering. And that's one of the dangers that we can also do. And why I brought up that social media element, which we're going to touch on throughout um, this passage, is because often we can just look at somebody from the outside and come to conclusions and say, well, they must be doing really good because they have this or that. Well, it must not be any point of following God because this person looks great in what they're doing. And so from his vantage point, he believed that they were prospering. But as we're going to see, the scriptures will tell us that that's not actually the truth. So now let's look at the way that he describes the wicked in verses 4 through 9. So starting off in 4, these are the conclusions that he's coming to in 4 through 9. So he says, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. So he's saying that their life is easy. And fat here is different than how we would normally think of it. Normally, for our culture, it's more we want to be skinny and in shape. But here, fat is a sign of wealth, of health, of being able to eat well. 
So he's saying their life is easy. They have no pain. They have ease throughout life. Then also going into five, they avoid the difficulties and troubles that are common to every man. They seem to be above common problems. They're better than that. And then six, he describes them as wicked in their attitude. They're prideful and they're violent. So these are very prideful and violent people. And it doesn't end there. It keeps going. Their speech, they're also wicked in their speech. They're mocking towards others. They're scoffing. to so people who speak ill of others, who speak down to others. And it doesn't stop there. It continues. Also in their power, their ability to be over, they loftily threaten oppression. So they misuse their power to suppress those who are underneath them. And then finally in verse 9, it doesn't just end with man, but it reaches to the heavens. They set their mouths against the heaven and their tongues strut through the earth. So these are people who not only scoff and mock other people, but they even look to God. They scoff against God. They mock God. They're boastful. They strut through the earth. And so we see them viewing the earth as their kingdom, their dominion, where they reign, and God has no say-so in that. And then Asaph makes another conclusion in 10 through 11, that he looks at the people of God, those who are around him and also those who do not know the Lord, and he comes to the conclusion They don't care either. They don't find any fault in them. They even come to the conclusion that God must not even know what's going on. And they exemplify the problem that we see in this first section, that they are making conclusions and determinations about God based off what they see going on with the wicked. So then as we come to verse 12, we see as Asaph, he's now made conclusions. He says, behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. So his conclusion about the wicked is that they are at ease, they increase in riches, God has overlooked their sin, and the people do not have a problem with what is going on. And so as we're looking at this and we just keep saying wicked and arrogant, wicked and wicked, he's describing a person. The question then comes is, who is the wicked? Who is Asaph probably describing? Who are the people that he's observing and coming to these conclusions about? And so I think there are a couple of different people. So I would say one of them is fellow Israelites. So one of the things we see in Scripture that even those who are in Israel are always faithful to God. And Judges paints it perfectly where it says that they were, did what was right in their own eyes. And often you see just this ebbs and flows. When we go through the books of history, we see one king will serve the Lord, the next king does not. And the people are going along in that same vein. And then he's also probably observing just those who are coming in contact with Israel and seeing the, their prosperity. And then that then reaches to us. Who are those in our time when we would say are the wicked and the arrogant and those who we would look at and say, why is the Lord prospering? Or like Asaph is struggling. So I think there's also multiple different examples of that in our time. So there are those who obviously are outright, disdain the Lord, have no time, and even speak against God. But another way that this is, is shown is also through nominal Christianity. And what I mean by that is those who only take the name of Christ, but their lives and their examples are nothing like it. And so they say that they're believers, but yet they they get involved in all kinds of things, all these different things. And so we see as he's describing these things and things that we also observe is those who are not with the Lord, who are not pursuing those whose lives are evident 
that they are going against what the Lord has called us to be. And so these are the people that he's struggling with as he's viewing them, and he's envious, and he's jealous, and he believes that they are prospering. And then he continues on in verses 13 through 14. So he begins off in 13. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So this right here is, a, I think, a, a hard question that he's wrestling with. And he's asking the question I know many of us have probably either vocalized or dealt with internally. Is, is it worth it to follow God? Is it worth it to remain pure? Is it, is it worth it to be obedient to the Lord? And this is the question he's struggling with because he's saying, I'm living this way unto the Lord. I've done, I must have done this in vain because I'm stricken. I'm rebuked every morning. But as he described back in 4 and 5, the wicked don't have these problems. They're not stricken. They don't have these problems. So is it worth it to follow him? And I know that may look in many different ways, but a couple that I've seen often in Christianity, in believers, in just the fellowship of one another, are these struggles of, am I doing this in vain? And so the three ones that I want to point out, and like I said, there's many more, is either in spouse and a spouse, in a career or in wealth. So starting off with a spouse. So if you are single, there can be that wrestling and struggling desire saying, well, I know those who don't know the Lord. And it seems like they're enjoying their single life. They're getting to be with whoever they want. They're able to be sexually promiscuous and they can do whatever they want. They don't seem to be having the troubles that I'm having. So why should I remain pure? Why should I wait to be married? Or those who are married and you see the world is telling you it's all about being happy. So you can go have an affair. You can get a divorce because that's what you need to focus on is happiness. Why struggle through a marriage? Why go through difficult times? Do what is best for you. So we see there that the example that the world sets and that struggle for us as believers to endure, feeling as if we should follow after their example. Another one is in career. And back to the social media thing where everybody's life is on there, where it's a highlight reel. You just see all the best things going on in somebody's life, all the great career opportunities, where they're able to travel and go. And you're wrestling with that also, of should I just forsake my time with fellowship with the Lord, fellowship with his people? Should I do it in a wrong way? Should I just pursue after this next career opportunity, even though I know it will harm my faith, it will harm my fellowship with other believers? Why is it worth it? And then also for wealth, the one I think captures so many people's hearts is that desire for comfort, that desire to have everything that you could have imagined, to be able to go wherever you want to go, to do whatever you want to do. And you see those prospering in this, and you're saying, I know they do not know the Lord. I know they are pursuing all these things, but yet they have the wealth. They have the career. They have the spouse. So is it worth it to continue? And this is the question that Asaph is wrestling through as he's viewing the wicked around him. But what I love about him is that even in the midst of this, there still is almost this safeguard in his heart not to go too far. Because on verse 15 he says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So there's an awareness in him that even though he's wrestling through this, 
He knows if he were to broadly proclaim his struggles and his doubts, he would hurt those who are coming behind him. He would hurt those who either are new to the faith or learning the children of Israel. And that's instructive for us also with our doubts, with our struggles, of knowing who to share them with, of being mindful of where other people are at and knowing some burdens aren't for everyone to carry. But by the grace of God, he gives us many people to be around. He gives us his body that we can have somebody to share this with. And one of the trends I've also seen that's it's been really sad just watching often online when either major prominent teachers fall away from the faith or they renounce some doctrine. And they're bold and they're proclaiming how they've left the Lord or they've renounced this particular doctrine. And how much destruction I see it have upon people because it's, I trusted in them. I looked to them to lead me, to teach me. And so is everything they said in vain? Is everything they said not true? And so a couple of things to think about when we're thinking about that is one, the Lord can use any person and truth is truth no matter the vessel. And so even when we hear from people who do fall away, if what they have said is true, they are telling from Scripture, it is still true. And the second and the more important thing is for us, our faith being our own and not attached to one person and not attached to a particular teacher or a leader. So that if everyone were to fall away, that we would still remain standing. We would remain with the Lord. And that is a legitimate issue and struggle in our time to see people falling away and very publicly. And so we see, as I love about Asaf here, that he does not do that. He's still able to recognize this in the midst of his difficulty. And so then he continues on in verses 16 and 17. So he says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. There I discerned their end. So this is the turning point of the passage. So he was distressed when he tried to figure this out on his own. It was a wearisome test. This is a burden upon him to figure this out. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And this is a beautiful turning point for us also. And though we don't have the temple, and as he's talking about going into the sanctuary, but for us, God is giving us means to be those turning points. So three that I want to highlight is with prayer with the word and the fellowship of the saints. So God gives us prayer to be able to come before him, for our minds and our hearts to be turned. We can go to his word to see how has he revealed himself, what is the truth, what can we cling tightly to. And then the fellowship of coming to church. I can't tell you how many, I'm going to say how many times, actually, you know what, how many times it's been for me of my own struggle with that of when you're going through that hard time, or even Bree and I will get into an argument, you're just like, I don't want to be around anybody. I just want to stay by myself. I don't feel like going to church. And I can also can't tell you how many times the Lord and his sovereignty and his grace, through the fellowship of being around other believers, singing together, hearing the word preach, how I started off not wanting to be, and by the end, the Lord has changed my heart. And what a beautiful thing that we have this gift of coming together to fellowship. And so we see this is where he began, is that he went into the sanctuary, and that is where his heart and his mind begins to turn, and he begins to see correctly. So he begins with the wicked in 18 through 20 by saying, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. So one thing I want you guys to pick up on and recognize here, his language changes. He starts saying you. 
He begins to directly address God. Before, he was only looking within. He was looking around. Now he's speaking to the Lord. He's recognizing his audience. He's going before the Lord. And the Lord is pointing something, and he's recognizing this, that it's not as glorious as he thinks it is. That all of this wickedness, all the arrogance, all that it may seem to be prosperous, it's actually not. It's a facade. It's a veil. All it is is a slippery path to destruction. They are destroyed in a moment. They don't know when their end is coming. And so as we see with him, we see that it's not for us to see that as that's the glorious life, that's the good life, because in reality, it will lead towards destruction, though it may look beautiful on the outside from afar. And he comes to this by going to the Lord. And then he confesses his own ignorance in 21 and 22. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He recognizes that he was not thinking rightly. And so there's going to be a quote coming up on the screen from John Piper in his book, Desiring God. And he, has a, and he comments on this passage I thought was just perfect. And it helps us to really think more about where Asaf is at at this point. So this is commenting on this, in these two verses in 21 and 22. He says, The lower stage of worship, where all genuine worship starts, and where it often returns for a dark season, is the barrenness of soul that scarcely feels any longing, and yet is still granted the grace of repentance and sorrow for having so little love. So I'm going to explain what, why that quote is perfect for right here. So Asaph is at a low point, as John Piper would call uh, the lower point of worship. And what he's getting at is that's not the ideal place to be. You don't want to be in the place where you're, recogni- or you're only recognizing how bad things are and how lack of love you have. And we're going to see the pinnacle of worship as we go into the next couple of verses. But as we're looking here, what he's getting at is that it is a grace of God that we're able even to recognize how lack of love we are, that we are ignorant in that moment, that God would grace us in this dark time to be able to recognize that we are far from him. And so that's an encouragement that the Lord is not leaving us in our despair, in our doubts, in our rejection of what his truth is. But he still says, no, I'm not going to leave you there, but I'm going to give you the desire to be able to recognize this. And so that's where we see he's at, that he's repenting. He's recognizing his ignorance against the Lord. And then he begins to make this progression towards this beautiful crescendo in verses 25 and 26. He says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me into your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. So he makes three statements here, and one of the commentators, I think, hit it right on the head with the words that he used. He said he grasped, he guided, and he will glorify. So he holds us, he grasps us. He guides us with his counsel, with his word, he, he guides us. And he will glorify us. And what is that but salvation of justification, sanctification, and glorification? And what a beautiful picture that we see here that is the Lord that holds him. And it's interesting, even going back from verse 2, where his feet had narrowly slipped, but it's the Lord that held his hand. And what a beautiful imagery that we can see, that though his feet may slip, but it's the Lord who holds him up. And so there's actually a psalm that hits this 
again, like it is, it is spot on. In Psalm 94, verse 18, it'll be up on the screen. If it said, if the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. What a beautiful picture for us that it is by God that we are held up. Though we may slip, though we may stumble, though we may fall, it is the Lord that will hold us. He will secure us. And that is his hope. And not only will he just secure us, but he will also guide us, that he will teach us, he will lead us, he will give us wise counsel. And then he will receive us to glory. And so on this phrase of receive me to glory, there's debate on it. If it's just a place of honor or if he's talking about heaven. And I'm not going to get into the debate here, but I think the point what he's making here is the you will receive me. Because it doesn't matter where it is. The point is that the Lord is receiving him. It's that he gets to be with the Lord, whether it's here on earth that we have everything, we have nothing. Or even in heaven, which he's going to say, it does not matter. It's that the Lord is there, that he is receiving us, that we are welcomed by him. That is the beautiful thing that he is going to praise. And we see this lofty expression. It seems like it's deep from in his soul in verses 25 and 6. So he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So again, Asaph puts himself in contrast to the wicked. So as I pointed out back in verse 9, the wicked spoke against heaven and strutted on earth. But Asaph says, I'm thinking of heaven because you are there, and I don't desire nothing on this earth. And so we see the flip, the reversal of the believer, that their hope is in God. That even heaven is not enough because if he is not there, but it's because he is there. It's not about the dwelling of heaven. It's because that is the dwelling place of our God. And that's all he can cling to. That's all he can hope in, that nothing on this earth can satisfy him. Because the Lord is his strength, the Lord is his portion. And that's another encouragement for us. That he says, I may, that my heart may fail. But if we're honest with ourselves, our hearts will fail. (laughs) Our hearts will fail. But he will not. He will not fail. And that is a confession that only those who have trusted in Christ can say. Is that though my heart will fail, he will not fail. He will hold me to the end. And then also he says of God being his portion. Going back to Asaph being one of the Levites. We're going to look at Numbers 18 verse 20. And so this is setting up of When the Lord is portioning out the land, the Levites had no portion in the land. And this is what the Lord told them would be theirs. And he said, the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among you. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. And so for the Levites, what they had was the Lord. That they clung onto. And though all Israel was worshiping and praising the Lord, they had no land that was going down through their lineage. And what a beautiful thing that we see in the Levites and also we can echo, echo that God is our portion. That we don't have 
the spouse or the career or the wealth or the fill in the blank of whatever that thing is you feel like you need to have or you believe that God is not giving you that other people are getting. He is our portion. He is what we can cling on to when all this will fade because this all will fade and it all will be gone in its time. He will remain. And those who are close to him and cling onto him, and what a beautiful thing we can do to praise our God for holding on to us and he being our portion. And so now as we come to the end of this passage in 27 and 28, we see Asaf again helping us out with a very concise and direct conclusion. So he talks about two kinds of people. In 27, he talks about the wicked, and then 28, he talks about the righteous. And there's going to be a on the screen from C.S. Lewis that I think is good for us when we're thinking of just people and where they're standing. So this is from C.S. Lewis's book, The Weight of Glory. So he says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as a life of a gnat. But... It is immortals when we jo- whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are not to be. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. So the reason why I put that quote there of, as we're looking at these two different kinds of people, he's saying there are no mere mortals. is because Scripture tells us clearly that everybody's going to live for eternity. But it's what state that you will live in eternity with. Those who will be under the wrath of God or those who will be in everlasting splendor, as he says. And so as we're interacting with people and spending time with people and as he categorizes these people, let us have that on our mind that people are going to spend eternity either in destruction and hell or in joy with the Lord and help us not to shrink back from sharing the gospel or even encouraging our fellow believers. Let us not remain silent and realize the weight of that. And as he says, it doesn't mean that we're going to be always solemn, but that even our joys are now that much greater, especially with believers of knowing that we will be with one another for all of eternity. And so that puts everything into perspective, that those petty squabbles, those disagreements that don't really mean much, that in the light of eternity, they fade. They are but a small and tiny moment. And for those things that are weightier, for those who know the Lord, to love him, that they should be at the forefront of our mind as we recognize that everybody is going to be in eternity but you're going to be in different states. And so now we look at how he describes the wicked and those who love the Lord. He says in verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. So the way that he describes those who are wicked is by being far from the Lord. So those who are far from the Lord are those who are going to perish. They will be destroyed. But... For me, it is good to be near to God. So the contrast is in their proximity to the Lord. 
And I'm not speaking of physical proximity, but their allegiance, their life, their purity of motives, their relation to the Lord. And that is the most important thing about every single one of us, is where do we stand with the Lord? Are we far from him? Are we running away from him? Do we want nothing to do with him? Or are we in intimacy with him? Do we know him? Does he know us? Are we close to him? And this is the hope for all believers. As he says, I've made the Lord God my refuge. And another reminder for us, he does not promise that we won't have suffering, that we won't have pain, that it's going to be easy. As we saw, that was a soft issue. Was He said he was stricken. He was dealing with difficulties. He does not promise that we won't have these things. But what he does promise and what we can cling to is that he says he will be with us. And it's beautiful as we see even Jesus' words at the end of Matthew. In Matthew 28, verse 20, as Jesus gives the great commission, he says something to him, and this is what we also can hold on to. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that is the great hope of every believer, is that though we may suffer, though we may struggle, though we may go through depression, or whatever else ailment that we will have on this life, Christ will not leave us. And though we may fail, and that we may struggle, he will not fail. And so as we see with the soften, it doesn't tell us clearly of, did he leave the sanctuary and come to all these conclusions, but I believe that he stayed there. And it's interesting that his ending is this. After he has talked about the Lord being his hope, Lord being his refuge, He says, that I may tell of all your works. And so that's the encouragement for each of us sitting here today, in our daily lives and even now, as we go before the Lord in prayer, as we spend time in his word, as we spend time in fellowship, let it not end there. Let it not just be a great moment for your own enjoyment, but go and tell. Tell of his works. Share the gospel. Encourage other believers. Tell of what God is doing. And this is what he has done, and we are the fruit of this because we're getting to see of his great works even in Asaph's life. And so the same thing for us. As we worship and praise and love our Lord, let us not be silent, but go and tell of his works.